Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday 21st of April, Matt Fell taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Matt looked at the doctrine of sin. Matt is the director for Relational Missions Year Team Programme and a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. We're going to shift gear now, and we're going to uh, think about the doctrine of sin. Um, We're going to do 15 minutes on sin. And then we're going to try and get interactive and get back into Leviticus. And the reason, the reason I'm, I've separated kind of doing a bit more kind of exegesis on Leviticus to the end is I think Leviticus teaches us some quite helpful things about what sin is and what God's going to do to deal with sin. So I thought it'd be worth going back to that after we've got thoroughly depressed by thinking about sin. Um, in your notes, there were some kind of like, you know, start of a 10 questions, but we're going to skip them because of time. Um, but this is going to be very interactive, so uh, you know, rouse yourselves for lots of participation. Okay. Um, let me tell you about the word sin. Uh, in Hebrew, it's katar, um, and in Greek, it's hamartia. I think I'm saying that right. Hamartia. Hamartia. Yeah, there we go. Hamartia. Um, And both of these words mean the same thing. And it's probably not what you think. Our society tends to think that sin is naughty things that you do. And possibly in a religious context, things God doesn't like. Um, And so our culture puts the word sin on like nightclub names. Or like, you know, wasn't there like magnum ice cream, seven deadly sins? Um, just the idea of eating an ice cream called lust is very disturbing in my mind. Um, but the word sin doesn't actually mean naughty things, or it doesn't mean bad behaviour. Um, literally, those two words, um, katar and hamartia, mean to fail, or more literally, to miss the mark. And they're actually a term taken from archery. So, um, you know, if you're doing your Robin Hood thing and you are doing your target practice and you miss the mark, you have catard. So in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, um, talks about 700 chosen men who were all left-handed. Every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not catard. So the word is used in a, in a non-religious, non-spiritual, non-ethical way, but the Bible also uses it to describe, uh, describe ethical moral acts. So sin is bound up with the idea of missing what was intended, what should have been. The Bible understands sin in a much bigger picture. And actually, you can't really think... I mean, I'm so... Um, I'm a systematic theologian. That's my kind of bag. Um, like, 
academically, I like joining the dots between things. It doesn't mean I, doesn't, I don't love the Bible. I deeply love the Bible. You draw all your doctrine from the Bible. Um, but doctrine also then in terms helps you read the Bible better, I think. And, and you join the dots. And so sin, missing the mark, is really only understood in relation to all the other big doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to do a bit of a kind of back and forth for the next few minutes. Um, as we think about the implications of, of, of falling short. Oh yeah, just to say, has anybody not got the notes? Because there's a big old wad down here. You sorted. Good. Okay. So, I... Um, oh no, hang on. Let me talk about a few more words first, actually. Because... Um, so. The principal term that the Bible uses for moral evil is, is sin, katar, hamartia. <coughs> but there's other three, oh dear, I've got something caught in my throat. <coughs> but there's three other words that scripture uses kind of in relationship to it. Uh, and they are iniquity, transgression, and lawlessness. Iniquity means behavior that is crooked. So behavior which is an expression of missing the mark so ethical action which is sin is iniquity it's crooked, it's bent out of shape, it's wrong it's not what it should be transgression means to break trust you transgress something you are breaking the the commitment that you have made the relationship that you have And then lawlessness um, describes uh, the act of disregarding the moral law, which is inherent in creation, um, but also revealed um, through revelation. It's to disregard what our consciences as human beings know to be right, what can be logically worked out to be right. It's disregarding that and disregarding what God has specially revealed to be wrong wrong and right. So with that background in mind, and particularly thinking about the idea of sin being to fail, I want to ask you some questions. Um, So I'm going to ask a big question, and somebody shout out an answer. Um, And the quicker we... Obviously, we don't want to rush it, but we want to make sure we move through quickly. So are you ready to participate, people? Are you ready to raise your voice and possibly even get it wrong at times? Does God Qatar? Somebody answer. Okay. Why not? It's a, it's a little, little trick here, isn't it? But um, God is perfect. God is holy. God is the source of all goodness, truth and beauty, justice. Um, God can never be anything but God. And God being perfect is goodness all the time. Justice all the time, eternally so. God can never fail at being God. And what God is, is thoroughly good. So can God Qatar? No, no he can't. Can God create Qatar? Oh. Stick your hand up if you said yes. Bless, bless you. More people than that said yes. But because I kind of went, oh, they've triggered off. Put your hand up if it's, if it's no. Hmm. Pardon, sorry? I don't know. Um, 
We're going to get there. We're going to, we're, hold your horses, lady. We're going to get there. Um, does God create sin? Directly, no. Because God himself can't sin, he can't be responsible directly for creating sin. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father in heaven, is what James says in the New Testament. And in God, there is no shadow due to change, no shadow due to variation. He is good all the time, so he cannot create sin. However, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God does create humanity. In fact, he is very intimately involved in creating Adam and Eve. These aren't just any other animals. They are very special. They are made in God's image. And we know that humans can Qatar. So what is it about human beings that means we can sin? Let me repeat that. It's a big question. What is it about humans that means we can sin? Is it that we are made to worship, but we also are made with free will as well? Okay. So you can worship the wrong thing. Yeah, okay. So we're made to worship... And that is the kind of centre of everything that we do comes from what we worship. But we also made with, you use the expression free will, which the lady over here did as well. Um, yes, but I, I'm going to qualify that. Gentleman at the back. Um, well, we're not God, we know we try to be. Yeah, okay. We're, so uh, you said we're not God, even though we try to be. And that's why we sin. And that's, that's a part of it. And it's the trying to be God, which is the important part of the equation there. So let me talk about free will for a second, because I think free will is a bit of a red herring. Um, And as modern people living in democracy, where our choices are kind of tantamount to who we are, or that's what we're told anyway, uh, we we think free will is a big deal, and freedom and liberty. I actually prefer the, the term agency. I know it's not quite as fancy, but um, Adam and Eve, human beings, have agency. That means they are agents who can choose. They have the option of choice. And I think that's more helpful than free will because um, I don't actually have unlimited freedom. I can't fly. In fact, there's lots of things I can't do. I can't sing. Um, I don't have unlimited freedom to do whatever I want. Um, But I do have agency. I can make choices. Um, And there's a freedom to that. And so God does make Adam and Eve with agency. The ability to choose him, to worship him, to follow him, or to choose otherwise. Why he does this, we don't really ever know. But, you know, we can have some kind of theologically informed guesses. God wants us to love him. That's what we heard in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength Um, he wants us to love him and if I was to put a gun to your head and say love me um, you you might show me some kind of you know outward display of affection but it wouldn't be genuine love there is something about love which requires our agency to be moved, to, to lay ourselves down, to give ourselves and there's something in worship of that as well, isn't there? Um, these are deep, deep, mysterious things. But the Bible seems to give us this, this picture. And even though the, the Bible is, is clear, God is sovereign, <coughs> the, 
not a hair on our head grows <clears throat> without God knowing it. God knows what we are going to do before we do it. Humans have agency. And God seems to have created that for a reason, for a purpose. And God so respects that that he, he holds us responsible for our choices. He knows what we're going to do. But we're still responsible for them. And we have to live in the tension of that. And without doing another two sessions trying to unpick some of that, I think we have to leave here today holding that tension because Scripture gives us that. And we have to wrestle with it. So it's, it's agency which means that we can sin. We can fail. We can choose to do what is, is wrong. And in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that God placed in the garden of Adam and Eve two trees, the tree of life, which they could eat of and live eternally with God, and the tree of good and evil. And interestingly, it's the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. Now, you would assume that Adam and Eve have already got knowledge of good. You know, everything God has made is good. Everything before their eyes, everything they're experiencing in walking with God, Adam and Eve already know what it is to know good. They don't know evil. They don't know wrong. Yes. Surely they don't know they, that it's good. They just know that it is. Because if you don't know that there is something other than good, then good is a definable concept. Uh, I think that's true if you're a Taoist or if you live in a, in a dualistic world where kind of good and evil belong to one another. But actually, in, in Scripture, evil is what, what theologians have fancily called the privation of the good. So, what is darkness? It's the absence of light. What is cold? It's the absence of heat. They're not things in and of themselves. You shine a light into the room, darkness doesn't go, Oi, get out of here! You know, the light pushes it back. But that doesn't change that with no knowledge that anything other than what they're experiencing exists, they have no frame of reference for anything other than the goodness they're experiencing. No, I think I would disagree still. I think that they... I think because goodness is, is a positive thing and evil is the absence of it, you can know good without evil. We have no... You and I have no category for what that might be like. But just because we don't know heat without cold, light without dark, doesn't mean that Adam and Eve couldn't, or that you and I won't one day in the kingdom. Matt, isn't this the reason that we are to experience the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Is that because what this guy saying was accurate at the time in the garden? And then after the fall, that position changed. Okay, did we have to question really is did we have to experience the tree of evil and the fall I think it is problematic to say that we had to I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong but I think it it then pushes the consequences of the fall onto God in a way that I, I've got reservations about. I'm not saying I'm, I wouldn't. I've just got reservations about that. Yes. 
is sometimes a choice. So rather than it being a thing in and of itself, we can have like, for example, with Adam and Eve, they were told not to go to, not to eat from that tree. They chose not to eat from that tree for a good long period until they chose to eat from that tree. So like if you're given, we've been given agency, so you could say, you could say they didn't know what evil was and they didn't know what bad was, but they still knew a choice and they still knew, they were still told what a wrong choice is. That's a great answer. I wish I had said that a couple of minutes ago. So for the recording, the young lady, what's your name? It's a great answer. Uh, said that um, because God had told them not to eat of the tree, they still could have had a conceptual awareness of what evil was, of what sin was, of a, regard, without having direct experience of it. Is that, does that summarise what you said? Okay. I'm teaching Genesis 1 to 3 next week and uh, that's going in the notes um, I've opened a can of worms here haven't I when they actually took their fruits they realised they were naked yes didn't they they hid from God yeah. now if they hadn't have taken that fruit would they have still have been aware of that well, I, I think the issue is, is not... I think their nakedness isn't a problem until they've tasted of it. No, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I think it wouldn't have been an issue. Um, and why would they have been? They no. So I, they become ashamed of themselves, don't they? I think the nakedness is not about, like, they take of the tree and they're like, whoa, these bodies are really weird looking. <laughs> Um, and they just hadn't noticed that before. I think it's the fact that they realise that they are culpable and they're not covered. And so the language of nakedness is, is about they're not covered, they're not um, protected from the, the consequences of what they've done. Yeah, but I was going back to that point, that if they haven't taken the fruit, then they wouldn't know that they... No, they, yeah. You know what, I'm, I'm going to leave this for, for Christchurch Manchester to fight about for the rest of the year. Um, and you can send me a, a tweet or something and let me know where you got to. <laughs> um, so the choice of evil, the, the choice of the knowledge of evil, uh, Romans 1 tells us looks like the suppression of the truth. It means choosing a lie over the truth. A lie about God, a lie about the world, a lie about ourselves. Um, so the next question I want to ask you is, if sinning means missing the mark, what does this tell us about human sin? If sinning means missing the mark, what does that tell us about human sin? That Sin is a failure to be fully human, as God made you to be. And I think this is really, really helpful, because I think if you just think of sin as like certain stuff to avoid, you're just painting a negative picture there. Whereas if you think of sin as the failure to be what God made you to be, it gives you a positive vision with which to, to deal with sin in your life. 
Sin is the, the failure to be what it is to be fully human. And it has deeply affected us. Because in Genesis uh, 3, it is the choice of Adam and Eve to make. By the time we get to Genesis 4, sin is a power which is affecting human beings. So you have Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, um, and Cain becomes jealous of Abel and angry. And God speaks to him and he says, Cain, Qatar, sin, is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. The picture God's painting is, 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 is sin is like a ravenous beast. It's like a wolf crouching at the door and it's ready to pounce. It's a power. It's a force of nature which humanity have let in. And this is important because Genesis 3 tells us that sin is a choice. It's a part of our agency. Genesis 4 tells us it's now a part of our psychological DNA, of who we are, our spiritual DNA as well. It's not just something um, we can or can't do. It's a, a force which has mastery over us. And the New Testament will pick this language up and will describe sin as, as uh, something of our flesh that just to be human is to be inclined to fail. To be inclined to, fa- to not be all that God made us to be. And actually, this... I think it's a really liberating way of understanding the human psyche. When I, I first had the gospel preached to me when I was travelling in India, um, and an Indian pastor was talking to me, and I was just talking about how I don't often live up to the standards of my life, and he quoted to me Romans 7, where Paul says, the good that I want to do, I can't do, and the bad that I don't want to do, I keep on doing, wretched man that I am. And I was like, holy moly, that's me. Like... That, that's, that's who I am. And I think it's a very liberating approach to, to what it is to be human. Next question. What are the consequences of sin? Someone shout, shout them out. There's a famous death. death. The wages of sin are death. God cannot allow Adam and Eve to stay in the garden. Because if they... And, and this is, it's interesting why he's... What, the reason God says they're booting them out in Genesis 3. He says they can't stay because they will eat of a tree of good and evil and live forever. God cannot allow evil to exist forever, so he has to kick them out. He has to hand them over to death, to destruction. Fumba, did I say? Oh yeah, that, that was a massive mistake. <laughs> um, he says, if they stay in the garden, they'll reach out, eat of a tree of life and live forever, and God can't allow evil to exist forever, so he kicks it out of the garden. That hands sin over to death. Um, but it's not just humans and their health which is affected by sin. The whole of the cosmos is. Um, and so in Genesis 3, the Lord says that the land will be cursed because of Adam uh, and Eve. And man who was made to kind of turn the whole world into a garden uh, will now find that the land resists him. Uh, and so our relationship with creation is marred. Creation resists us. It's scary. It's daunting. Our relationships with one another are now fractured and broken. Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel, and this runs throughout the entire human race. How does God feel about sin? He hates it. He's angry. He's wrathful against it. 
And wrath is not a bad temper. It's really nice to say wrath up north, because down south everybody corrects me. Wrath is not a bad temper. In God's unchanging goodness and justice, he will always oppose the distortion of his good creation. And yet, in his love and desire for all men to be saved, God hands us over to the consequences of sin. He doesn't just consume creation straight away, just chuck it in the bin, start again. He hands creation over to the consequences of sin. And C.S. Lewis described it as God's megaphone. The consequences of sin in the world, our distorted relationship with the environment, with one another, our health, ultimately death, is God's megaphone to a broken world saying, come back, come back to me. Having looked at Leviticus earlier on, what's the other consequence of sin? Yeah, our alienation from God. And these are, these are linked. So if God is the source of goodness and light and life, then to be exiled from him, to be kicked out of his presence, is to be exposed to darkness and death. Um, so these things are linked, but, but we can't come back to God. We can't come back to the one who would fix us. He can't just allow us to come in without having to do something about it. Um, because he can't, he can't associate with sin. He can't just say it's okay. And I think it's, it's helpful to just reflect that God's judgment on sin isn't him being a killjoy. Um, it's him lovingly caring for the world that he's made. It's him saying, I will not settle for anything but the very goodness I initially made it to be. And Christians, knowing God's judgment on sin, I think I mean, it just it helps us appreciate what he's done for us in Christ all the more, doesn't it? helps us appreciate his grace in salvation and his grace to us in just all the blessings that we get to enjoy i was in the park with my little girl the other day she's almost two she just talks all the time can't understand a word she's saying and the sun is shining and she's beautiful and i just i just thought wow lord i do not deserve this do not deserve this and particularly um having a daughter was a big thing for me Choices that I'd made throughout my life, particularly with women and how I'd viewed women, just were not healthy. And so for the Lord to give me a daughter to care for has just been a a wonderful healing thing for me. And I was looking at her and I was just thinking, wow, Lord, you are so gracious. And that's the knowledge of my sin, which is leading me to that gratitude and that thankfulness. How does the Bible describe sin's effect upon us? Well, we've kind of answered that one. I should have deleted that question. Uh, does the law help us? What does Deuteronomy say about that? Does the law given to God's people in the Old Testament, does it help us overcome sin? sin? It, it sets up the mark, shows us what we should have been aiming for, shows us how we've fallen short, as we heard at the very beginning of today. But think about what Moses says about the need to circumcise our hearts. Does the law save us from sin? No, no, it doesn't. So then, what does? Hey, there we go. Um, what has to be done to deal with sin? Well,
what has to be done to deal with sin. Let's look at Leviticus, shall we? Now, I think, why don't we all stand up and come and join me down the front here? And it's going to be chaotic, but it's totally worth doing. And we've got 20 minutes, so let's do it, let's do it. So, if I can ask you guys to stand against the walls, best you can. Um, Folks can sit on the stage. This is going to be madness. This is going to be madness. Folks can sit on the stage, sit on the chairs on the front row if you want, sit on the tables. Okay, very, very quickly, I need three priests. You can be a priest. Who else wants to be a priest? Yes, we've got another priest. Yes, come on. Okay, so our priests uh, can hang out in here. Uh, this is the tabernacle. Can we get it up on the up on the screen? Oh, he's come down, hasn't he? You weren't. You're not like a. Come on, Andy. Um. Okay, so this is the tent of meeting. This is the tabernacle. We're back at uh, Mount Sinai now. Um, the walls in this line are the outer court of it, so the the perimeter. The uh, helpful baptistry here <laughs> is the outside of, of the actual tent of meeting itself. This is the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwells. And this is the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's throne, his portable throne. And it has two angels, two cherubim carved on the top and, and God sits, is enthroned above them. Um, this is the Holy of Holies. This is the holy place. This is an altar for burning incense. Um, and as, as, as we go, I'm going to point out what some things mean. Incense, uh, in the Old Testament, is, is a picture of prayer. It's, it sw- smells good, smoke rises up. It's a, it's a prophetic picture of what our prayers to God are like. This is the table of the bread of the presence. We're not really going to talk about that today, but there was some bread, which was always there and was present. Uh, this is the lampstand. Interestingly, the New Testament will say that Jesus is the bread of life and he's the lampstand, the light of the world. Um, And this is covered up. So you can't look into this. Uh, It's all very dark and mysterious. The kind of the curtains almost look like the night sky. Um, And only the priests are allowed to enter here, you guys. And only the high priest was allowed to enter here in only one day a year. The Day of Atonement. Is that you? Are you going to be a high priest? Great. This was the basin for washing, um, and this was the altar for sacrifices on the outside. Uh, so let's do a little test run. Um, who wants to be our passionate... Have we got a worship leader in the house? Uh, Ian. <laughs> yes! Okay, Ian. Uh, don't worry. Ian, you get to choose your bull. Who's your bull from the, uh, the folks we've got here today? Who's my bull? Your bull, your bull, bull. Okay. You know. Who are you going to sacrifice? Yeah, who are you going to kill? I'll choose you. <laughs> okay. So Ian's going to do a burnt offering, and a, a burnt offering um, is is to make atonement. You know, remember I said atonement is to be made at one, but it's not necessarily an atonement for sin. 
Ian just, he's a worship leader. He loves the Lord. He wants to be one with the Lord. He wants to give his all. So he brings his bull over to the priests. Um, and he lays, he lays his hands on the bull to associate with it. My hands. Yeah. And then the priests kill the bull. Okay, yeah. It's alright, he's still moving. He might. It's not quite gone. He might need to get back up for this next bit. Where am I going? Uh, stand up for now and I will. Okay. So he had to be a bull without blemish. Clearly, Ian made a good choice. Um, and uh, the, the, the bull's been killed before the Lord. So we've not really got the space. But that would have mean the bull would have been killed here, looking at the presence of God in the temple. Um, the priests then take uh, the bull and bring it towards this, the, the altar. Uh, and the burnt offering, the whole bull is going to be consumed. He's going to be burnt up. But beforehand a few things need to happen because he's dirty on the inside and know he looks good outside inside he's filthy there's dung and all that stuff so the priest this is pretty nasty you're gonna have to cut him open and wash his insides who wants to do that <laughs> um so so he's cleaned up outside and inside he's put on the altar with red hot coals and he's burnt up <laughs> And it says that this is a fragrant offering before the Lord. It smells good in the Lord's nostrils, is what it actually says. Is that you being on fire? (laughs) Marvellous. And Ian's done this. And in in putting his hand on the bull, and the bull being completely consumed, Ian is saying, I'm giving you my all, God. I'm giving you my all. It's a burnt offering. And interestingly, you know, in the New Testament, when the Spirit comes upon God's people... He comes in flames of fire, doesn't he? Um, And Paul says in Romans, the whole of our life is to be a living sacrifice. In the fire of God's Holy Spirit, we give our all to him. Um, That's cool language. That's kind of the stuff us charismatics like, isn't it? You know, in the fire of the Spirit, I give you my all. That's what the burnt offering is there to remind us of. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Abol. You guys can can take a, a seat back. The burnt offering is really important because it sets up... You, oh, the priests need to stay. You guys are here for the long haul, I'm afraid. You're in for the long haul. The burnt offering is really important because it kind of is the, the archetype for some of the other offerings. So we're talking about sin in this session. Um, and there's two offerings for sins. There's the, offer, the sin offering, which is for unintentional sin. Uh, so who is our sinner today? Who wants to be our sinner? Okay, marvellous. Thank you, Tim. Okay, uh, so this is in, where are we? We're in Leviticus 4 now, I think. Um, now, now, Tim has become aware that he's been coveting his neighbour's property. Cats. Cats. <laughs> Is cats a thing for you? Yeah. Okay. Hate them. She's got 15. Oh, okay. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> I sin oh, right there. There we go. There we go. Unintentionally, Tim has hated his neighbour in his heart for all her 15 cats. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he's been convicted, and so he comes, he comes to the tent uh, and. No. No, you need to grab a bull. I'm afraid. Who's going to be your bull? There we go. Bring him before the priests over here. Now, Tim didn't know that he was he was sitting in this moment. It wasn't, you know, one of 
those moments when he's like, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. He realized afterwards. Um, and I, I think, it might just be me, I have those moments quite a lot. <laughs> where I kind of think back and go, oh gosh, what was I doing in that moment? Tim's had that, that moment. And that's, that's an interesting thing to reflect on. Sin isn't just the big moments of rebellion. Actually, more often than not, it's those moments we don't even catch ourselves doing. It's our failure to be what God made us to be, to love him and to love our neighbour um, and her cats. Uh, and so, uh, like the burnt offering, Tim needs to lay his hand on his ball, confess his sins, say it out loud to him. I confess to not liking my neighbour's cats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the priests are going to then kill the bull. Um, no, no, hang on, we're not, we're not into the fire yet, though. We're not into the fire yet. Uh, so the bull is killed. The blood is taken from the bull and is chucked at the bottom of the altar here. So the blood is poured out. Now, does, does anybody who's read Leviticus know why blood is important? It's the life, yeah. Leviticus will forbid God's people from drinking blood because the life of a creature is in its blood. Um, which doesn't mean that it's kind of, it's, it magically its spirit is somehow in its blood. It, it, it's recognising that without blood we die. Um, and so blood represents our life. And so this animal is dying and his blood is being poured out to represent Tim's life. The consequences of sin is death. And Tim, living as, God, as one of God's people, is close to the Lord. And the Lord can't... Hand, can't uh, can handle he can't abide sin to be allowed to continue and so there has to be a death sin has to end uh but because god loves tim which is good news isn't it he provides this way and so the blood of the bull is poured out its life is poured out before the lord to make atonement for for tim's sin now interestingly only the innards of the bull are then burnt the kidneys the liver um, now, you know when you really need a wee, you feel it, don't you, in your kind of kidneys? When the Bible refers to kidneys in Leviticus, it's, it's kind of got that theme going on. Your kidneys in Scripture is what you yearn with. Um, so sometimes our English translations of the Psalms will say, like, I, I yearn for you with my heart. Actually, the Hebrew is like, I yearn for you with my kidneys. <laughs> this kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? And so the kidneys and the fat and the liver are burnt on the altar to say that really deep down, Tim is sorry. He really desires to no longer be sinning. And then the carcass is taken outside of the camp. One of the priests take him out. Uh, and then is burnt up outside the camp because the bull has now represented sin. And sin has to be taken out. Out of God's creation, out of the camp. Thank you, Tim. Um, now imagine that uh, Tim then goes home and he, he's been convicted about his, his uh, hate of his neighbour and her cats. And then he knows that he shouldn't, but he goes and he like how, uh, strangles one of the cats. Kicks, no, that's, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? He kicks one of the cats on his way home. Um, in that case, he's incurred guilt. Um, and in that situation, he would come back and make the same offering again, but with a few additions. Um, 
he would have to repay his neighbour. He'd have to go to the cat store, buy a cat. Uh, but he would also <laughs> have to work out a fifth of what it cost him to restore that to his neighbour and give that to the priests. Um, what does this tell us about sin? Well, it tells us that God doesn't just want to forgive sin and wipe it away. He wants to restore what sin has damaged. Sin damages. Your sins are damaging you and those around you, even if you can't see it. God wants to restore what sin destroys. Another really fascinating thing about the, um, the sin offering is Leviticus gives lots of different variants of it. So we've just done the individual sin, but there's uh, sacrifices for when your leaders sin, sacrifices for when the priests sin, Sacrifices when the whole community of Israel sins. Because sin isn't just an individual matter. It affects the whole community. And whole communities commit sin together. And leaders, when they sin, it affects other people. Which is a a challenge for those of us who lead in God's church or in any area of life. And this, I think, shows us that sin is is bound up. It's not just us. We are bound up in, in the communities that we live in. And sin is a communal problem and so your sin is a problem for your neighbor and your neighbor's sin whether they're a christian or not is a problem for you Um, and god wants to to cleanse communities of sin how is he going to deal with it well he needs to take sin out of a camp as we saw there needs to be a death in the place of sin god's judgment needs to be upheld Um, and there needs to be restoration Leviticus is giving pictures of what needs to happen to deal with sin. Let's go to the Day of Atonement. We were going to do lepers, but you need to all have lunch at some point. Um, you should read the lepers. The, le- the leper cleansing of lepers in chapter 14 is, is beautiful, genuinely quite beautiful. Uh, let's, let's have a party. Let's have the Day of Atonement. So this is one day, uh, centre of Israel's calendar, where atonement is to be made. Uh, for the whole of Israel, because chances are, you know, not everybody's got a conscience as, as, as gentle as Tim's, you know, so several of us have probably sinned but haven't really noticed it. So all of Israel needs atoning for, and interestingly, the, tem- the tabernacle needs atoning for, because we've just made it dirty and, and we've brought all of our sin into it. And so everything, the whole of Israel, needs cleansing from sin he's atoning once a year and so uh, who's going to be our chief priest you're our chief priest uh, we need two goats can you pick two goats goat number one okay goat number two um on the day of atonement the high priest would have to make a ton of sacrifices for themselves first sacrifice for their own unintentional sins uh, they would have to wash, they'd have to, to be cleansed, they'd put on new clothes in order to do all of this. And then two uh, goats would be taken. Now let me get my notes right about this. The first goat would be sacrificed as a sin offering. Um, so you guys, if you want to kill the first goat, okay. um, yeah. chop her up. Which one are we killing? killing Whichever, either one. Um, And the blood would be taken into the holy place. Now, notice all the blood and the sacrifice so far has been outside. Uh, But now our high priest will bring it into the holy place and would sprinkle the blood 
on everything in here, cleansing it all, atoning it all, and then would come into the Holy of Holies. And this is the only time anybody in Israel could do this and would be poured out onto the top of the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was. The blood is being brought before the presence of God. Very important. The high priest would then go out. We'd then get our other goat. And the leaders of Israel... Let's have some church leaders very quickly jump on forward. Oh, I've just disconnected myself. Uh, Let's have some church leaders jump on forward. Come on, Andy. Uh, Come on. Several, several of the leaders of Israel would lay their hands and would confess the sins of all the people onto this ghost. From what I've heard about Christchurch Manchester, we've not got the time. Uh, and then that goat would be led out into the wilderness. Where we don't actually know if he would die eventually. Um, he would go off. What does all this represent? Well, uh, it represents several things. That for all of God's people, um, in order for them to truly worship, our sins need to be atoned for. They need to be uh, propitiated. That is a God's judgment upon sin needs to be dealt with. He needs to be satisfied that sin has been dealt with. And so death has to occur. The death of the first goat Blood is poured out to show that that death covers all of this. And then that blood is brought before God to appease God, to satisfy God. The technical word is to propitiate. Now, the word propitiate uh, means to kind of stop being angry, to satisfy one's anger. And it's a word which is used a lot in ancient religion. Angry gods all the time need to be propitiated. Did anybody see Troy on the TV recently? Because you're all good Christians watching what you, you know, be careful what you watch on telly. There was a horrific scene quite early on where uh, one of the Greek gods was angry for no reason and demanded that Agamemnon, the Greek general, killed his daughter. Uh, And he did so to propitiate the god. The god of Israel, the god of the Bible, is not an arbitrary god. And what's more, when he asks his people to propitiate his justice, he himself provides the way of how it's going to be done so that they don't have to. He's unlike any other God. And so blood needs to be brought and shown to God, but also the sins of the people need to be taken away. How does this point us forward? If we read all this with faith, Jesus comes to be our atonement. And he does so by taking our flesh. And so just as the leaders and and Tim earlier on associated with the sacrifice by touching the sacrifice, Christ comes and touches our flesh. In the incarnation, God touches our humanity and associates with us. It's like the reverse. It's like the bull coming up to Tim and saying, here I am, lay it all on me. Christ comes and touches our humanity to take our sin upon himself. He dies his blood is spilt on our behalf for our sins and then uh, after the resurrection when jesus ascends to heaven he takes his sacrifice into the holy of holies in heaven and presents it to god and the book of hebrews is a is one long commentary on the book of leviticus and it says that christ has made the once for all sacrifice once for all propitiation to avert god's wrath and judgment on sin.
What's more, we saw the goat be cast out into the wilderness. Our sin needs to be taken away from the camp, out of the camp, get it gone from us. Christ takes our sin into the grave. He takes it to death and to nothingness and he leaves it there. And in our baptism, we go down into the water. We have died with Christ and our sins stay there. God says he chooses to remember them no more. As far as the east is from the west, so, he, so far he separates our sins for us. All this is drawing upon Leviticus Day of Atonement language to describe what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Very, very quickly, let me talk to you about the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, Israel was to have a special celebration and it kicked off on the Day of Atonement. Uh, and what would happen is that the Day of Atonement trumpets would be blown throughout the land of Israel um, and it was a great celebration a year of of rest began on that day rest for everybody from their work if you were a farmer you would just leave your field and trust that God had provided enough food for you a year of all debts being cancelled if you were a slave or if you were in debt your debts were free were were wiped you were allowed to come out of slavery you were liberated if you had lost your home, your land, your, your property, you were allowed to return to it. Uh, and laws are given in Leviticus to make sure this happens. And it happens every 50 years. And it begins when the high priest, having taken the blood into the presence of God, comes out from behind the curtain. That's when the trumpets would be blown. And this points us to the day when Christ returns out of heaven, where he has taken his blood before the Father. 1 Corinthians says the trumpet will sound when Christ reappears, and there all debts will be cancelled, all corrupt government will be swept away, there'll be peace, there'll be reconciliation, there'll be fasting, there'll be rest for the land. In Leviticus, the land was to be allowed to rest for a year. When Christ returns... Creation will be restored and we with resurrected bodies will get to live in jubilee with our God forevermore. That's how God deals with sin. And we're done.